welcome to our guest. My name is Kat Boyd. I'm joined with my lovely co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? Good. I wonder, by the way, if this section of the pod has been preceded by a certain piece of illicit music. Of course it has. Uh, we, we haven't succumbed to the, to the madness. What, not playing the national anthem of the USSR? Yes, a defunct state. Um. <laughs> yes, a defunct state. Um, well, as you know, following the um, the complaints that were made on the the blog that some of you may have heard of, um, Bella Caledonia, um, I did make some other versions. Oh yeah, which were potentially um, yeah, little bit. Remember, um, do you remember um, America? Fuck yeah. Of course. Yeah, from uh, Team America. Uh, we could have that. Uh, Not been banned America, yet. fuck yeah. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you uh, just you don't actually get that type of satire anymore because people then go on their blog sites um, and write insane articles about it because no. liberals are completely humorless bores. So humorless. I actually, I can't, I mean, I'm glad. I think both the name of this podcast and the theme music were chosen on a whim. <laughs> I think I think the both the name Contacast, we may even have inherited it. And the, I think the idea for the song, I think it was the first thing you suggested and we were just like, yeah, go for it. I mean, of course, like it was on the back of a fag packet, like everything we have ever done is on the back of a fag packet. I think the accusation is that it's thoughtless. You didn't put no, any thought in it. Oh, David, that's... Right, look. Listeners, we'll just cut to the chase here. This is an article that appeared in Villa Caledonia this week, <clears throat> um, which accused the West of um, perpetuating systematic... No, sorry. Symbolic violence. Does that by, actually say that? Symbolic violence? It says symbolic violence. By playing the theme tune, the, the national anthem of the USSR at the start of podcasts, calling yourself a communist or having a hammer and sickle in your Twitter bio, which, by the way, every time I see a hammer and sickle in a Twitter bio, I'm like, that person's probably not a communist. Every time you see a hammer and sickle in a, a, pre, a, a Twitter profile, you know that you're going to have people who are like pro one half of the split in the royal family. Oh yeah, they're they're not just pro one half of the split, David. They're pro they're Camp Megan. Yeah, 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 pro pro Princess Megan, right? Um, often pro EU. I'd say very likely either pro war or soft on NATO. Um, basically just liberal. I mean that the, the hammer and sickle is a surefire uh, sign now of. Someone who's obviously never wielded a hammer nor a sickle. I mean, that's not surprising <laughs> because <laughs> it's not that surprising because we don't really have that type of economy in Britain. Um, but certainly if we did live in that type of economy, yeah. would never have wielded either. Um, it's just a symbol of kind of like attention-seeking kind of establishment woke leftism. Do you know? It's that, yeah, it's it's that like type of... Politics, it's like which is how simple. I um, used to have the anarchist symbol drawn on my school daughters. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Or six, six, six. 
yeah, yeah. A poster of Marilyn Manson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that's what the hammer and sickle is now. But also, like, um, uh, I just, I mean, it, you know, you know what it is. It's just this sort of like uh, attempt to politicize literally everything. Um, and and the symbolism in language is the most political thing. I mean, one of the most common features of the kind of the new call-out culture around Ukraine is picking up on bits and bobs of language, saying the Ukraine instead of Ukraine. I swear to God, see if I hear one more person talk about chicken Kiev, I'm going to fucking shoot myself. Kiev instead of Kiev. I mean, people people genuinely believe they don't live in a society where like propaganda is a thing anymore. And yet this is a country where in the space of days or hours, right, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, every news presenter uh, in the West, every journalist in the West and newspaper went from saying Kiev to saying Kiev and to spelling it differently. That's because a directive came basically from the BBC and was issued throughout newsrooms in, in the entire country. That this is formally how you now say certain words and certain phrases within hours of the invasion. And you, I mean, you serious, and, and, and at the same, simultaneous to that, everyone started changing. I say everyone, people in the kind of politics adjacent professional layers in society instantly started saying Kiev, Kiev, and so on, having never said it before. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just, and people, you know, compliance is violence. If you're still saying chicken Kiev at this point, you are perpetuating symbolic violence against survivors of the USSR. Well, I mean, what I found particularly objectionable about this um, this blog post is <clears throat> it hits on all of the things that I utterly despise about politics and the way that it's conducted now, because it starts with a really horrible story of personal tragedy, which essentially, like, see when people do that, right? And I just want to be dead clear. See when you read something and it starts with, here is my personal tragedy. What that is doing is it's setting itself up for being beyond criticism, because if you criticize the article, you are somehow denying this person's experience, reality, their tragedy, their trauma, whatever it is. It is a form of emotional terrorism. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, um, it's, it's, yeah, you're right. It's perfectly set up so you can't criticize the, the political content of the, yep. of the argument, which is completely reactionary, by the way, which is completely reactionary. So first of all, you say, I mean, it's something like something terrible happened to my dad when he lived in the former USSR, right? And then you say, and now on to the meat and potatoes of my argument, which is that everyone who's critical of NATO is a sympathizer with Stalinism and uh, NATO is therefore good, Russia is evil. And this is in a political climate where, you know, like there's this weird Russia scare, which by the way, right now amounts to pulling chicken Kievs from the supermarkets and chucking uh, Russian vodka down the drain and, you know, taking that um, compare the meerkats thing off air and, and all this shit, right? Don't start me like, on the meerkat. Right now, that's where it is. But of course, uh, this will result in violence and already is resulting in violence, right? It's the consequence of every war, by the way. I'm not singling out the Ukrainian people or something for this, but there are already um, violent reprisals against kind of ethnic Russians and Russian speakers in Ukraine itself and elsewhere. And that will spread around the world. 
I mean, it's it's a matter of time before there are serious acts of violence against Russian people. I also and, think it's important to remember that this is a, <clears throat> as you say, the the quick shift within like media circles from Kiev to Kiev, for example, and that being a directive. This is actually a, and this isn't conspiracy theory, this is the strategy of the ruling class in the West. Because anti-Russian sentiment costs them nothing. <laughs> costs mm. them nothing. This is free, right? And every time some liberal dipshit buys into it, then all you are doing is fulfilling an agenda that where the ruling class is saying, you know, it's we need to... Um, you know, have a full cultural boycott of Russia, everything Russian is evil, and, um, you know, we need to watch our pronunciation of certain words, all of these things, because for the last number of years, the West has been complicit in a game with Ukraine that says you may be able to join NATO, and when it's come to the crunch, it was never going to bloody happen. So no. they're doing something like we need to do something about this Russian invasion was never ever going to be like a military response from NATO or the West. Instead, it's this mad anti-Russian sentiment. And there's a crazy conflation happening, I've noticed as well, which is that every like Russian is now a communist and all communism is about Russia. See if you don't like the theme tune to our podcast, babes. Here's a really great tip. Don't listen to it. <laughs> it's a fucking podcast. <laughs> I just can't believe that that trope is still considered worthy of like being reproduced at this point. This idea that it's like Russia has something to do with communism. Have you paid attention to the last fucking 30 odd years? It's just mad, man. I mean, it's totally. just absolutely crazy that that's everywhere. And it used to be something you would find on the right. And you still do, I dare say, right? It used to be a kind of Fox News trope. Oh, of course, Obama loves the Russians because Obama's a communist, right? And Vladimir Putin is, in some sense, still a communist, right? Which is shit, obviously. Now it's very much a thing of the kind of centre-left. Yeah. Right? Because it's a way of explaining... It's a way of explaining the, the anti-war left, right? Uh, without taking on the anti-war left's real arguments, you can just say, well, obviously, the left historically has sympathy with Russia because of communism. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, I just, I, uh, I think we're way Which, past... by the point. way, is clearly not the case for anyone who's listening who has been on the far left in Britain. <laughs> I've been at meetings in recent years where people are still arguing about the fucking Soviet Union. I know, I know. I know, I mean, it's... Um, uh, Britain was was the home of some of the most sort of aggressive and assertive uh, so-called third camp um, tendencies, uh, which means people who thought basically that the USSR was variously not socialist, uh, something even worse than capitalism. That was a major tendency on the kind of Trotskyist left. And the British left in general never had a strong affinity with uh, kind of the Russian-Soviet experiment. Other European countries did. I mean, Italy and France, uh, for example, had large communist parties that were kind of Moscow-line communist parties. The British Communist Party was very small. It peaked at something like 55 or 60,000 members, and it was um, it was never as strongly aligned with Russia as some of the 
the other European Communist parties. Beyond that, the British Labour Party, there was a period, particularly in the interwar years, when the British Labour Party, some of its intellectuals had affinities with the Soviet Union, people like Harold Lasky, but that was quite short-lived. After the, with the Cold War, the Labour Party was one of the most pro-Western Cold War parties. So it's just total shit. I mean, it doesn't even recall a historical reality in many, in many yeah. regards, right? It's total idiocy. Um, but, I mean, you can't count on liberals to be educated on anything, on history, uh, on, on present economic and geopolitical realities. It's a politics of ignorance. It's a politics of militant ignorance, um, which is why it's so prone to reactionary turns. It's the reactionary form of politics is genuinely kind of obscurantist. It doesn't care about the real historical record. It's very prone to conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theorism is quite a kind of ignorant form, so understanding of social relations in yeah. society. And let's not forget the dominant conspiracy theory amongst the American liberal elite for a large number of years now has been Russian. Of course. I mean, that, that is now a really powerful conspiracy theory. It's probably the most instrumental conspiracy theory in western world in the western power system um and it's out of control i mean there are whole publications dedicated to it now if you look at things like the new european and the byline times i mean these are very much guardianista middle class uh, liberal publications and they're absolutely chronic i mean it's i mean not in reactionary content but reading it it's like der stürmer do you know what i mean it's like that the hand of the Russian is everywhere. It's in the banking system, it's in the media. Um, I mean, Neil Mackay, who's obviously an economist at the Herald in Scotland, he sent out a newsletter right at the start of this saying that the pro-Putinites had to be purged from academia, activism, and the media. By uh, activism, by the way, what the fuck are you talking about? But anyway, like, I mean, that's one of the country's leading columnists sent a newsletter to tens of thousands of people, I don't even know how big the, the Herald's newsletter is, mostly in the middle class saying, we must purge the enemy within. A non-existent enemy, right? Like, I've I never... genuinely, like, don't know anyone who is serious about politics who is in any way apologising for Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I've never met these people. I have, I just... I have never met these people like, I don't think I ever will meet these people. I'm sure there's bams fucking saying mad shit on the internet. You know it's fine to someone Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. people That's say what it's for. all the time. Uh, um, but that article I thought was actually disturbed, to be honest. Like, I thought it was like a really, like, the idea of people being purged, people who don't actually hold that opinion being purged. What we do know is that if you are actively choosing, as I am, to understand this crisis in the correct historical context, which means understanding the role that NATO has played in this conflict, and that that is a very real and core part of what is happening, there will be people lining up to say that you are an apologist for Putin. Exactly. That's actually, and that's reading between the lines of that article. That's what I see. It's an article that also called for sanctions against the Russian people so yeah. that they would rise up against their, their tyrant and throw them off. 
And it, by the way, see if anyone can find me examples of when that strategy has been successful and hasn't just impoverished the lives of millions of people at home and abroad, then I'll, do you know I mean, I'll happily admit that I'm wrong, but sanctions regimes in recent years have only served to radicalize the, 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 the population on which they are inflicted on. They radicalize people. Well, I mean, we, we don't need to guess about this. Uh, Doctor, There's a, an academic, Dr. Lee Jones, who has actually done the scholarship. I mean, he's looked at the empirical examples. And his rough estimate is that sanctions have or even move towards their mm. um, desired sort of policy objective about 5% of the time. And much more often they backfire terribly, right? So for think of Cuba. There's never been a time since the Cuban Revolution that Cuba hasn't been subject to sanctions of some form. Um, and it's generally thought to have sustained the Cuban government um, because it allows them to turn to their public and say, the nation is under attack. I mean, Cuba was a very divided society at the time of the revolution. By no means were all the Cuban people supporters of Fidel or alignment with the Soviet Union or whatever. But of course, once you can say, um, well, it's not, this isn't about communism, this is about the Cuban nation, right, and our right to independence from the United States, you create a much larger and more powerful basis for your government. Um, and you're, it's very easy to say of dissidents, they are traitors, right, because they are in league with the people who are literally attacking us. The people who are literally making you poor are the people on, this, on the streets criticizing the government. So you put dissidents in a very difficult position right from the off. And of course, this is what's happening in Russia right now. Um, Putin is able to point at the anti-war demonstrations and say, your elderly people are going cold and hungry. Your kids can't eat, right? And that's because of these decadent pro-Western liberals in the streets who want to stop this war. So it's, I mean, but no one cares. I mean, people on the one hand will say, um, oh, well done to the anti-war movement in, in Russia. Though I have to tell you, quite a lot of people told me at the start of all this, that uh, it was a waste of time because Russia's a dictatorship and the Russian people can't do anything about it. Um, but they'll, on the one hand, they'll say, oh, the heroic Russian people, look at them, that's the real anti-war movement. And then they'll say, starve them, right? And make them, you know, a kind of popinjay for, for the Russian government. So there's no question that sanctions are unlikely to be a, a decisive factor in this situation. But they will lead to declining living standards, both in this country and around the world and in Russia. Yeah, there was, I mean, there was a, a piece out, I think it was in the Failing Guardian um, recently, which was talking about the impact on households. They think it's about £2,000 a year. Um, households will be worse off because of sanctions. I mean, my, my view is that the only, like, the only possible solution to the conflict is de-escalation, the removal of Russian troops and assurances around NATO. I, do, do you know what's been driving me mad? I feel like I've been fucking gaslit, right, <laughs> for the last few weeks. Because every time I've said anything, and I haven't been on Twitter um, as part of a, you know, trying to lead a bit more spiritual life during Lent. But every time I've mentioned NATO, people like look at you sideways as if you were like a pol I mean, there's just, there's no grounds for defending Putin's actions. There's no grounds for defending the Russian invasion, but equally there's no grounds for denying NATO's involvement in the current crisis. 
And every time that I've mentioned NATO, people kind of are like, oh, well, you know, this is about Russia and Ukraine. And then when you see the, there was um, headlines and it was Zelensky saying, we won't join NATO. And that had come out of the first sort of major or like where there was actually some uh, productive discussions um, around political talks. And suddenly I'm like, this, but this is what we mean. Like, surely people are now saying, well, why are these headlines about NATO? When we've just been told by every Western media outlet, this is not about NATO. I know. Do you know what I mean? I like people have been totally misled um, by the, the dominant media narratives on this. And I won't shut up about NATO's involvement because it's a fact. It's actual historical fact. And I'm not going to be gaslit or you know, be sold certain stories about why that makes me a perpetrator of symbolic violence or whatever. No, it's, it's totally inane. As you say, um, I mean, there, there isn't really an international relations scholar in the world who thinks that NATO isn't one of the moving parts here. It would be a very, very strong, strange world indeed. If, um, I mean, it would be just, it would be sort of like saying the, there's no relationship between the Earth and the Moon or the Moon and the Sun. Like, NATO is the most powerful military force in the world. Uh, it has a military force of around about 2 million, and it could easily double that overnight if it wanted to, right? Um, and you're saying that a country does anything geostrategically in the world without consideration of what NATO's response is going to be. Obviously not. I mean, I think people just need a really basic reintroduction to some material realities. This empire is the most powerful empire in world history. Do you know in the future, you know, you get people who say things like, um, oh, I wonder if we'll be remembered as the atomic age or the digital age or something, right? It's just as likely this age will be dated by its empire, like the Roman Empire, right? The era of the Roman Empire, the era of European colonialism, you know, the British Empire, the Belgian Empire, and so on. I think this period will probably be remembered, uh, perhaps more than anything, but it will certainly be a, a, a high on the list as a period where there was a unipolar world empire that sustained itself over several decades. Uh, and much of what, I mean, you won't be remembered for whether or not you ate a chicken Kiev or a chicken Kiev, right? But you probably will be remembered uh, for, like if anyone is remembered from this period, it will be for your relationship to that empire, where, where you are an outspoken supporter of it, were you critical of it, you know, the anti-war movement in 2003 will presumably be remembered as one of the moments in which people expressed disagreement with the ruling world state of affairs. Um, and do you know what I mean? Like a, a great deal else that people talk about is just pish. I mean, that, that is one of the central facts of our period is the scale and extent of that empire and its hegemonic power. And all these nitwits, right? I mean, I'm not saying this for everyone who's put a Ukrainian flag in their bio or, you know, stuck one on their car or whatever, right? I mean, I don't know what people's motivations are sometimes sort of naive and well-meaning, right? But, like, their, their great eagerness is that history will remember me as a good person. This is part of the language of all this stuff. It's the same with, like, the BLM stuff and so on. Like, a lot of people who associate with that, they imagine that, in the future, they'll be looked upon in the same way as Martin Luther King and the civil rights marches were, or Harvey Milk was, or whatever. Trust me, if you're one of the people who's running around 
trying to get people kicked out of academia because they say that NATO is a factor in the present war, you're not going to be like remembered as Martin Luther King, right? You're going to be remembered as one of the weirdo bug-eyed McCarthyites who is paranoid about a perceived decline of Western power, a perceived decline of the most powerful empire in world history, right? That's how your, you know, that's how your behavior should be remembered. And I don't care if that you call yourself a liberal or think that you're fighting some fascistic Putinite conspiracy worldwide. It's pish. Like you have deluded yourself and you've deluded yourself for the purposes of that this imperial power. Ultimately, behind all of your ideas and all of your actions lies your desire to be associated with the central node of power in the world system. Um, and that's the real character of this politics. Recently, we just published a, an article on Conta where uh, James Foley says, and I think he's right, you know, this, what we're witnessing is a sort of reactionary wave, right? The, of the type that often accompanies war or situations of heightened imperial tension around the world, typically there's, a, there's an effort to root out dissidents at home and all this kind of stuff. But there's no doubt at this point that the main perpetrators, not the soul, I mean, you'll still find plenty of Tory weirdos, you know, like Tom Tugendhat and all these sorts of people shouting about no-fly zones and the enemies within. But there's not, but the cutting edge of this campaign is definitely the sort of liberal left. I mean, uh, do you know what I mean? I mean, it's our just first minister was shouting about a no-fly zone. Absolutely lost the plot. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> astonishing. I've stopped, I've stopped believing, by the way, that that has anything to do, or that, it, that its main object is to align Scottish independence with like NATO and the EU and stuff, because I don't think Nicola Sturgeon thinks that's the thing that's going to happen in the immediate term. I'm just looking forward to seeing how many of these SNP politicians end up in NATO or associated organisations once they leave their careers in politics. I mean, I, I agree. I think that it's definitely on the cards. If Stuart McDonald isn't lining up a job in NATO, he's an idiot. Totally. He'd have totally. a really comfy job in there. And it's a, a, they're, they're great jobs. Remember how much money goes into all this shit, by the way. NATO are swimming in money, right? Because they're backed by the empire. They're swimming in money. And there are dipshits with comfy jobs, right? Who do very little real work. They turn up at international conferences and shake a few hands and go straight to the fucking buffet, right? And it will be the best fucking buffet you have ever seen in your life, right? Um, and I mean, do you know what I mean? Like they are they are buying the most expensive prostitutes after the free wine's been drunk and all this kind of stuff, right? That is a, I mean, that is a gravy train's gravy train. So, like. If, if people like Stuart McDowell and Alan Smith aren't, aren't eyeing that up, because you can work in there for 20 years, touring the world, going to the most glamorous cities, right? Um, shaking hands with some of the world's most famous people, right? Um, and being patted on the back because every couple of months you publish a report on Russian disinformation or some pish, right? And cut, turning a blind eye to all NATO's wars, right? And pretending... I mean, Stuart McDonald wrote an article, of course, in the in the paper where he systematically ignored Serbia, Libya, Afghanistan, and just said it's purely a defensive alliance. It's never never attacked anyone. 
just lies just <laughs> outright lies but like when you are like in league with NATO the way that those types of politicians are you can just say whatever the fuck you like say whatever you want no <laughs> journalist is ever going to question you no has any journalist ever said to Stuart Macdonald don't you think it's bad that NATO invaded Afghanistan and then occupied it for 20 years? And then I stole mean, all the money. Stole all the money. And now everyone there is starving to death. You know, as uh, NATO troops were fleeing Afghanistan, they bombed Afghanistan cities. One last bit of arbitrary punishment, one slap in the face on the way out. They bombed Afghanistan's undefended cities. These cities don't have any fucking radar or... I mean, they are the houses are rudimentary, and they just bond them. Just to just to just to say, just remember who we are, right? Don't kick us out of the country. Just remember that we're leaving of our own free will. Here's some bombs, right? I don't remember anyone, literally anyone, even recording that it happened. You had to go looking for that news, by the way, about that bombing. We're talking days before the Americans left the country, by the way. I don't remember anyone saying sanction Britain in America. I don't remember everyone saying rename Beef Wellingtons to something else, right? Or even the plastic wellies. Don't call them Wellington. Uh, he's a British imperialist. I don't remember anyone saying send guns to the Taliban. Though actually, of course, we did send guns to the Taliban. We definitely <laughs> sent fucking guns to the Taliban, David. Inadvertently, right? <laughs> what? I don't- I don't, I don't remember anyone changing a profile picture to the Taliban black and white flag, right? Or putting, you know, Takbir in their, uh, in their profile. I stand, I stand with Taliban. Um, though, I mean, uh, and by, by the way, before anyone thinks, well, there's a big difference because, you know, the Ukrainians are like not big beardy Muslims or whatever, right? Who, who, who are social conservatives. Well... Um, I mean, this idea that like the Azov Battalion is like you think the way some people talk about it is about half the Ukrainian army or something. It's not right. It is a battalion and an army. There are like far right currents in Ukrainian society that does not in any way legitimize an invasion. I mean, there's nowhere near as powerful a far right in Ukraine as there is in France. I'm not saying that France should be bombed. Right. But it's a bit of a like distraction tactic. Yeah, but but we are sending weapons to people who are neo Nazis. I mean that is a fact. So if so that that removes the objection that the the the, the Taliban have reactionary politics or whatever. Surely, if the moral imperative is when Britain and America are bombing the Afghan people, you need to arm the fighting part of that population, and that's the Taliban. And that I mean, and again, I'm not I'm not just being flippant or whatever. That is the argument that is being deployed over Ukraine. You know, the Houthis in uh, Yemen are being bombed right now with British bombs targeted by RAF personnel from Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Presumably you want to arm the Houthis. Presumably you want to sanction not just Saudi Arabia, who are now getting the oil deals we've cancelled with Russia, right? And this isn't some secondary war zone 400,000 people have died in Yemen and the war is ongoing it's going on right now so they are now benefiting directly from the sanctions on Russia the war in Yemen and the murder of Yemeni people is being bolstered by the sanctions against Russia um but you know presumably we should be at the, the sharp end of sanctions as well Pepsi 
right? Since they care drinking so right much, now, since they care so much about uh, the lives of people in war, that I shouldn't be drinking this. This should they should be withdrawing their business from Britain, um, and you should be calling for that if you're if you're calling for sanctions and and weapons uh, in uh, you know over Ukraine if you're calling for weapons to be sent in and so on. But I mean, you can do this all day. At the end, at the end of the day, I, I, I was saying this to someone recently. I was saying, do you know that you know like mindfulness techniques, right? I actually think that that would be useful at this moment, right? Sit with the idea for the moment that you should care as much about what's going on in Yemen as you do in Ukraine. And then ask yourself honestly, if that's how you feel. Ask yourself honestly, if you are as anxious as what people think you think about Yemen, as what people think you think about Ukraine. Do you know what I mean? Um, Now, for me, someone who uh, is very alive to the reality of Yemen, I have to tell you, I'm not as anxious around that issue as I am around Ukraine. Why? Because I'm part of exactly the same psychological landscape that everyone is subject to in this state right now. But let's be honest, that's not about my relationship to the suffering of the people of Ukraine or my relationship to the suffering of the people in Yemen. Like everyone, a ton on the TV, I see the scenes, I think, Christ, that's awful. And by the way, like most people who are like me, you know, like white, Western, etc., uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say that there was a certain shock aspect to seeing it happen to kind of white European people. Right. Obviously, that's been weaponized. There's no question about that at this point. But even beyond that, the real reason for the difference in in attention span, the real difference for the reason for the difference in feeling, I don't even really think it is about race as such. I think it's about old fashioned. The state wants this to be your emotional priority at the moment. It wants this situation to be at the top of your list of moral priorities right now. And we respond. There's I no mean, question. completely. If only, if only the state had realized that the cure for the coronavirus pandemic was going to be this war. Because it's, you know what I mean, like, it's just it's gone now. Because the priority is for people to have this type of emotional response. You know, it's so incredible, isn't it? This kind of like roving uh, sort of hysteria that has been kept going and kept going and kept going, and now seems such a part of normal cultural and political life and kind of mass psychological life in society. I got a really profound feeling of this when I saw Nicholas Sturgeon retweet um, a picture of St. Andrew's House, which is the kind of main government buildings where the actual work of government is done in Edinburgh, lit up in the colours of the Ukrainian flag. And I was like, shit, this feels so much like BLM. Like it, it feels so much like BLM. Overnight, all the brands are um, blue and yellow. The government buildings around the world are blue, blue and yellow. Um, there's this symbolic mobilization of kind of imagery and words and linguistic tickings off and panic and a real sense of anxiety and a real sense of suspicion. All these things work together. Have you said, have you put a BLM picture in your profile? If not, why not? Yeah. It's, Are it's, you a racist? Um, there's a lot of bad faith out there, which is obviously like the liberals sort of like default setting. That ever, I mean, you can't, 
they just take everything in bad faith. So unless you are like, you know, saying something to like have an Ukrainian flag in your bio, then by act of not having it, it means that you are to be treated with suspicion and potentially be purged, mm. um, which is, do you know what I mean? That is, that is complete bad faith. And that's what's happening in a lot of places at the moment. And I saw this. I think that there is an aspect to which that people have more sympathy with Ukraine because the people like look more Western. I, I think that that is happening. Um, I don't think that that's a good thing, obviously. Um, but I think that that is part of it. Um, I saw I actually saw this really fucked up thing on Twitter. It was like just a few days before I decided to come off for um, my Lenten bake. Um, it was a picture of tweeted by a, um, a kind of media company, like an internet based media company that was tweeting a lot of information out about the Ukraine, um, about like, you know, the situation in Ukraine, what was happening on the ground. And they posted a picture of a little girl in a hospital bed um, who was, you know, clearly a victim of bombing and some, you know, intrepid <laughs> internet sleuths found the original and it's of a little girl in Syria and she's mm. brown and they lightened her skin. Oh my God, man. It, do you know what I mean? Like totally sick as fuck, but that should, do you know what I mean? Like that's a challenge to people because obviously it was being retweeted. Like this is terrible. Here's this little girl covered in like rubble, crying alone in a hospital bed. Like it's a confronting image, no matter what the child's like skin color is yeah but the fact that you know the response around ukraine has been weaponized in those terms i think is is really really disturbing and it's also i think the product of the the recent western adventures abroad so the idea that countries like iraq afghanistan um, are like these are these are dysfunctional places where the people are like a rabble and they don't know how to rule themselves i mean this is literally the cradle of fucking civilization mm -hmm. <laughs> like, this is like these countries are from the most ancient parts of like who we are as as people um do you know what i mean like not <laughs> it's a very like racist trope to see it as like they're just like people that don't know how to manage their own affairs the west should come in and sort it out like, yeah. I, I think a lot of this like increased sympathy or so seeming solidarity I'm not really sure that that is solidarity but this extended sympathy with Ukraine has really been it's been brought about by that continual narrative that, I think the word is wrecked by the way as well solidarity oh solidarity meaningless yeah. meaningless word wrecked. I mean it's it's now so frequently used quite expressly as a, as a relationship with the state. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I express solidarity. You know, I want my state to show solidarity with people in another country by through military assistance. Well, I mean, that's not a very good type of solidarity. I mean, it's... It's been completely destroyed. Um, like, that's not my understanding of solidarity at all. As well, the other thing is, is your solidarity, in, as in the old solidarity forever type trade union song, it indicated uh, a relationship where you sacrificed your own something. 
either it was a day's pay or it was you would sacrifice your own uh, safety in a situation, right? So you'd stick your neck out for someone else where otherwise you could have sat on the sidelines and ignored what was going on. You know, you would stand in solidarity with someone who was being persecuted at that moment. Um, now it's the exact opposite. You express solidarity for personal gain and you express solidarity for fear that you will be singled out yeah. because you don't do it. Well, like, the, I think that this is important to, to recognise that, like, my understanding of solidarity is that you put aside some part of your own personal interest um, to join together with people who you don't like yeah. <laughs> in order to pursue a collective interest a collective material interest, like whether that's for more money um, or more freedom, like that, 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 that's what solidarity is. It's when like, you're actually, okay, so something like taking strike action, it's an act of solidarity. You stand in solidarity with people who you work with who you don't really like, and you put that shit to the side because you are in pursuit of a much bigger goal than your yeah. own. And now it is completely flipped on its head, which is that you only stand with people you like and all that you are trying to get out of the situation is your own personal gain, nothing collective. No, absolutely. And, and this idea that you would sacrifice, I mean, to put it really bluntly, I mean, kind of bearing in mind that there is a, well, I hope there is going to be major industrial action over this P&O stuff, right? I mean, that's a huge, massive layoff and it kind of clarifies uh, the need for that sense of collective identification but if you think back to the scale of some of the strikes that were going on in this country 50 years ago I mean I think 1972 was the world you know the historic peak of of labor militancy for the British working class in the 20th century I think um, you were going out on strike with hundreds of thousands or millions of people at once right um, and many of those people were, would have been right-wing. Like, many of those people would be Tories or worse. I mean, I always remember reading about how um, at, the strike, at the start of the Great Miners' Strike, there was a National Front presence in mining communities. You know, in communities under extreme pressure, ideas can go in, in various directions. Like, you'd go on strike, you'd go on and strike with people who are in the National Front, right? Um, that idea is to so much modern left-wing sensibility is so alien at this point um, that it's just, you know, th there's such a personal economy of um, this idea of a sort of uh, a cordon sanitaire that you place around yourself and you say, I am, uh, you know, I'm a clean person. I'm clean of the world. My hands are clean. Um, and that, that goes in for all kinds of things. It means that you can network with the right sort of people it means that you have job opportunities available to you. That's, it's the competitive instinct of the middle class, basically, and the instinct towards networking is a very different form of social relationship to, to that that was exper experienced traditionally by parts of the working class, where it's not so much, not that this doesn't go on in trade unions, of course it does and always has, but it's not, it's, it's kind of the immediate halt to the ladder climbing instinct that people fall prey to for a for a, a higher sense of collective cause or identity um which has just been is just swept away by 
campaigns like this and which is inimical to campaigns of public hysteria do you know what i mean like um and you really like a period like this really does test people like someone who's willing to literally shut up and not tell the obvious truth that everyone admitted days before about something like nato i mean it just it just kind of spells it out the entire labor left the socialist campaign group i say the entire labor left i mean the the parliamentary group just agreed that they would not talk about they would not criticize nato any longer and you just think well, what's the point what's the point in that I, I honestly don't get the point of any socialist being in the labor party at all anymore it's done i was thinking and you know people can say well it's a long game and you know <laughs> they are retreating to make a strategic advance in the future no they aren't once you've decided that you can't discuss foreign policy, there's no point in you even being in that parliament, to be quite honest. Like, there's no point in you being there. And don't tell me it's so that John McDonnell can wander onto a picket line. Fuck John McDonnell. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, but like, I've never seen someone slide so quickly on so many political issues as John McDonnell. Oh, and by the way, he's- Someone who I held in very high regard. He has nothing to lose. His pension is fucking huge. He has been in that parliament for fucking ever, right? He's not, he can't be there very much longer. He has a huge pension. If I was in his position with a huge guaranteed pension, I'd just be an absolute raj. Do you know what I mean? I would just be like, I would be saying the most extreme stuff in that part, the most extreme stuff I could get away with taking the hardest lines I could possibly. Because what's the worst that can happen? All right, he doesn't get his seat in the next election. Man, why would you even fucking want it? But I was thinking about this the other day, right? Um, see if I was a centre-left liberal. I've often thought to myself, right, if I'm the sort of person who thought that Starmer was a good option for politics, right, or indeed Nicola Sturgeon, right, if I was a kind of SNP liberal or a, or a, or a Green or a kind of Starmer liberal or whatever, I would simply not. I would simply not be interested in politics. I would assume that kind of Fukuyama's end of history thesis was ultimately um, correct, but in an even more extreme sense than Fukuyama argued, I would think that like the way that photography replaced portraiture, um, you know what I mean? It's just a technological innovation that meant a whole area of art was basically redundant. I would assume that um, something had replaced politics. And I would think that politics was there for a kind of realm of has-beens and losers. And I would just be interested in something else. I would just move my interest on to, I don't know, technology, psychology, something else. I would just, you know, what's the point in fighting over between the Tweedledee and Tweedledum options? There isn't, right? And it's yeah. politics is exhausted, right? But I, I then I was thinking this though. Like this is this is fundamentally why I'll never why I'll never move to the right the way that through the avenue that basically most people on the left ultimately do which is that they drift into liberalism why well yeah i mean why just join the, the hegemonic ideas of your society there's no point if you're going to do that don't if you're going to do that go and enjoy your life <laughs> like capitalism doesn't need any more support from you but actually i then thought let's say i was just a total nerd and i was into politics on that level and that's that's the reason a lot of people are into centrist politics, by the way. It's just their particular. Some nerds are um, uh, those people who watch trains coming in and out of stations, and some of them are the types of nerds who read the New Statesman. But if I was that type of nerd, I would be a supporter of the Conservative Party. And I'll tell you why. They're more pragmatic on the economy, 
right? They're more likely to use state-directed efforts, right? Particularly in an economic crisis, it has to be said, the boom times tend to belong to the corporations. But, you know, I don't believe that Starmer would have been as decisive over the kind of lockdown economic measures as the Tories were, for the very simple reason that the Tories have the heft among the capitalist class to do stuff like that. If the Tories all decide as one that they are going to just overnight bring half of the workforce in, into the national sector, they can do that. And the, the business class have nowhere else to go, right? So the better on economics. <laughs> they are less rabid on foreign policy, traditionally. So it's not, it's not for no reason that there was, there was a Labour Party that launched a succession of wars, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq. I'm not saying the Tories don't have plenty of wars to themselves. Of course they do. But there's a certain messianism to left-wing warmongering. There's a certain fanaticism um, that you don't tend to get so much on the right in this country. And it's telling that um, the Tories are, I don't know if to the left is uh, a useful phrase, but they're more dovish. <laughs> than the centre-left is. It's uh, Nicola Sturgeon who's saying no-fly zone. Um, the, the, the kind of the ruling part of the Tory party, forget the fucking weirdo backbenches, they are much more kind of restrained and they're just right from the off. Boris Johnson has said, there's no way we're engaging in World War III. So on both foreign and the major planks of domestic policy, the Tories are just a more sensible liberal option than Labour or the SNP. So I just, I don't, if you're centre-left, why aren't you just backing the Tories? I don't get it. I mean, in some senses, I mean, I think it just comes down to cultural signifiers for the most part. The Tories are a bit more vulgar on um, kind of nationalism. A little bit. I mean, Starmer's all over the shop with it, right? Um, yeah, I mean, they make more enlightened noises about things like immigration the actual um, experience of them being in office, uh, you know, tells another story. I think it was, I think it was easier for the Tories to take the economic measures that they did during the pandemic, the early stages of the pandemic than it would have been for a Labour government, even under the control of someone like Starmer. I think yeah. it would have been presented in a very different way. And I think there would have been an absolute fucking hysterical reaction to essentially nationalising workers wholesale yeah. like that um if it had been a labor government that's just one of, i mean that's just the way the british politics works like it's always been like that always will be like that i mean it's a big reason for me for like supporting independence is that like you're actually trapped between labor and the tories forever and a labor government there was one shot at it with corbyn and even that was weak potentially very weak um but the idea of a Labour government been able to implement anything progressive without like shrieks from the capitalist class. Never, I mean, it was never going to be an easy ride. I think that it's also interesting that Labour are the kind of the party of like a kind of they have always had that kind of like imperialist sensibility, of course. But mm. like since Blair, they have become synonymous with like with globalization and globalizers um, in a way that like the, the Tory party haven't. And, um, you know, I was actually, I was just talking to uh, James about this earlier on today um, about some of the, like the old rhetoric, like, do you remember 
do you remember being like pure I mean to this out right because it's not a very well-formed thought do you remember being like totally appalled at like British jobs for British workers slogan oh, yeah. how do you feel about it now uh I'm still opposed to the slogan but I'm I often associate that now with the strike uh, that took place sometime after Gordon Brown had said that. Um, that was the strike. Well, am I, am I mi- mixing up my industrial actions here? Was that Lindsay oil refinery? Yeah, it was a bit of it, Lindsay. Um, I think large sections of the left kind of lost the plot over that, because if I remember, and I don't, I mean, so basically this was a group of workers who had been displaced for uh, foreign agency staff. Were they Italians? I can't remember. Um, and well, there's echoes with the current situation with P&O. The suspicion is that the agency staff that they're going to bring in uh, are going to be foreign workers. Now, the strike initially took up the slogan of British jobs for British workers. Uh, but I, to be honest, I mean, is that that's a, that is a fairly natural reaction. Now, as the industrial dispute uh, progressed, that stuff was kind of toned down, right? Um, but I think a lot of people uh, on the left, I say a lot of people, I mean, activisty chunks kind of uh, went spare over it mm. and took, had a panicked reaction, which I just don't think is the wise reaction. You know, look, uh, I've not seen any of this, I have to say, from the P&O workers. But if some P&O workers were to say something like that, oh, this is because there are some noises, I think with some uh, people are already saying oh, this is an attack on British workers and so on. If that was a thing that was said, I would recognise that as a, a potential pitfall, right? Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't just completely shit the bed over it because I same. think you, you need like, to... I don't feel like... I don't think I would shit the bed in the same way that I did before. I, I, I think that the kind of, like, the reaction to British jobs for British workers at the time was the correct one we're in a very different political climate then um but now like do you know i am like vehemently opposed to offshoring of jobs mm-hmm. like i do think that jobs should be created in britain um, and i think the people who live and work in britain should do those jobs like <laughs> that's surely that's not right wing I, I mean, I would say that was a fairly standard kind of like social democratic attitude. Like you, you shouldn't you shouldn't have a race to the bottom in paying conditions. Is this, basically what the argument amounts to. But and but this is the thing is like that I see like Labour, the Labour Party is synonymous with like things like offshoring, things like globalization, things like privatization. I'm not saying the Tory party didn't do any of these things. Um, but really ramping up it from 97 onwards like I see that as like part of the new Labour continuum which which is Starmer as well and And the thing is like about someone like Jeremy Corbyn is you have to remember that on international issues he was a fucking outlier in that party oh yeah yeah. consistently anti-war, anti-Trident, anti-NATO pro-Palestine very anti-EU and I mean, this is the thing, like, um, he was an outlier even among many of his own supporters, right, um, and having that kind of very political attitude to the British state and what it does. I mean, I was saying there, 
Labour uh, kind of different rhetoric on immigration. Uh, Labour, I mean, New Labour's record uh, of uh, promoting immigration to Britain. I mean, obviously, right? I'm not some kind of like close the borders <laughs> crazy, right? Um, but that that shouldn't stop us from understanding that uh, he did do that to try and like lower wages and increase competition in the wage market. Unless you think that Tony Blair did this because he's a nice guy. Unless you people think do. people do. Unless you think Tony Blair did this as one of his like redeeming features, right? As well, you know, he bombed Iraq, right, and killed a million brown people, but. He doesn't like xenophobia, and that's why he brought hundreds of thousands of workers into the country from Eastern Europe. That was definitely his motivation, David, is that he... As of course it was. I think his, the motivation was probably twofold. One was that he wanted to uh, increase competition in the domestic wage market in Britain. And you ought to remember, I think it's something I've raised in this podcast before, Eastern European workers aren't even entitled to the minimum wage in Britain. And that's built into EU migration rules. So the whole purpose of, I mean, the purpose of uh, free movement is for other things. It's for so that businessmen can go and live in different countries and stuff and make shit tons of money. But it is also to promote um, uh, a wide and very flexible pool of labour where there are different legal entitlements for different groups of workers so that you can always have that as a threat. Okay, you're demanding higher wages. I can get Eastern Europeans in here to do your job. Uh, and they are not even legally entitled to things like the minimum wage, right? which you can't even fucking live on. Um, so it's partly to do that, but it was also partly because uh, uh, Blair and co were absolute, Blair in particular, were fanatical for EU expansion and for the advancement of the European project. But yeah, I dare say some people just allowed themselves to sort of think, well, on at least some in at least some ways, that Tony Blair is a lovely liberal, and that's why he loves immigrants or something. Um, he uh, promoted a very particular form of migration for the exact same reason that the big corporations do. You know, um, and I don't know why anyone would try and make themselves blind to that reality. Uh, apart from anything else, you're just destroying the basis for a protection of the rights of immigrants. Uh, if you just pretend that they're not being brought in for that very, very specific purpose. And then they wouldn't have those rights for migration unless, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't be granted those from the top of society unless the top of society had a very specific objective in mind. I completely agree. Like, I was actually just looking on my phone there to find this um, this fucking wild HSBC advert. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's their, like, no borders adverts. Oh, yes, this is HSBC, like the bank, like financial services. I mean, it's spectacular, right? So they've got all these like adverts and um, with things like love knows no borders. And um, when we see beyond borders, we see opportunity everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly, it's honestly so good. Like, um, I just... It, do you know what I mean? It just supports what you're saying, basically. It's like, this is not... HSBC ain't, ain't doing this pattern because it's um it's right on. It's doing this pattern because they are absolutely motivated by pure financial interest. And it's a win-win, right? Because 
it's a thing that you can do that promotes the profitability of the system, including presumably businesses that HSBC are invested in. And it sounds lovely. You know what I mean? And it has general societal approval. And I dare say that HSBC have one of these social media accounts where every so often someone says, get those you know get those foreigners out of this country and then they tweet back and be like that no thank you we're inclusive do you know what i mean i dare say they've got that kind of thing going on as well um but yeah and and do you know what as well it, it really reinforces how liberal a liberal anti-racist sensibility really just again just has no idea how bigotry and racism really work because there's this attitude that the, the way that anti-immigrant sentiment typically works is or sort of racist sentiment works is it's one of those um, go back things, right? Get out my country. Um, there was like a BNP slogan that was something like, don't unpack, you're going back. That kind of fucking <laughs> slug level, like grot level fucking um, sort of- So grotty, man. Uh, like, like a sort of, what would you call it? A kind of narrow-minded sort of like, I don't want to smell your foreign cooking kind of thing. That's actually rarely what racism looks like, right? That's a kind of residual thing. It's often uh, sort of a, a form of bigotry that comes from parts of the kind of general population. Um, but that's quite unusual, right? So in the United States, that's not what racism towards African-Americans has traditionally looked like in the United States. It's not go back to Africa. No one's like, that's not the racist sentiment. The racist sentiment is, no, stay here, stay in this country, but know your place. Uh, yeah, usually in jail. It's not, it's not go back, it's stay, but know your place. Stay and, be, stay and be criminalized. Now, is that or is that not a version of that, what we have for Eastern European migrants in Britain? No, I don't want you to go back to Eastern Europe, right? That's stay not and stay clean the toilet that. is what fucking clean liberals say. Stay but know your place and know that you're not entitled to the same things that the domestic British population is. Yeah. And those things even include the most basic legal rights that people have. But like this liberal sensibility is blind to this, right? Well, you got a lot of that during like um, the EU referendum campaign. There was like squealing liberals talking about how we needed to remain because there wouldn't be any au pairs left. No, the worst one that I must have brought up in here before was the guy on Newsnight who said, look, what this comes down to is 15 years time. He actually said this in the, from the audience at question time. He went, 15 years time, I'm in an old people's home. Who's going to wipe my bum? Right. And he went, is it going to be a British lad or a Polish lad? I think we know. I think we know it's going to be Polish. And that's why we need to stay in the EU. And I was like, just come right out and say it, mate. Just come right. <laughs> it's the fact as well that he's just he's using his anus in, in a political conversation. <laughs> just deploy it. Just deploy my ass right into this. That's like that's a real like shit or bust strategy. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's funny. a bit like that's a bit like how we started this conversation about like here's my emotional story. Yeah. <laughs> You cannot disagree with me. You disagree with me about remaining in the EU. What are you going to do about Mars? Yes. Yeah. That's my question. I'm dropping Mars on the table here. <laughs> Bouncing Mars off the table like that. You're going to do about this arse. Like, oh, yeah, it's all very well and good to talk about leaving the European Union. There's arses needing wiped. <laughs> uh,